Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. And we are going to begin this morning in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 41. Genesis 27, verse 41. You'll find that on page 22 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take that Pew Bible home as uh, your own. And I trust God will bless you through it, uh, just as He blessed us uh, just a little while ago, didn't He? And um, I do want to just uh, let you, you, this crowd know that God has clearly gifted you all, and uh, it is a great blessing to us that you're sharing those gifts with us this morning. Uh, you are a means of God's grace to us and encouragement to us. You, of course, caused half of us to cry, and, so, um, and yet we're very thankful for them. Are you thankful for the crowd this morning, church? Our text this morning will begin in verse 41, but for time's sake, I'm going to begin our scripture reading in chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the word of God. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran and came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. And lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up to the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Because the name, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word even now and uh, the great encouragement it is to us. I do pray in particular we would see uh, the great outpouring of grace uh, demonstrated here on this very sinful man and yet a very gracious God as you are. And so will you uh, even now take the word in which you have written and help us to understand it through your spirit that we would have hearts to delight in it and minds to understand it and a will to obey it. And so we pray. Your saint prayed long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was about a week after Christmas in the year 1944, 
at Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was the home to dozens of women, including two sisters, Corey and Betsy Ten Boon. After 10 months in the uh, concentration camp, Betsy, who happened to be a very strong believer in Christ, grew very sick. Corey would write of the event saying, Sleet stung us as we reached the outside. I stepped close to the stretcher to form a shield for Betsy. We walked past the waiting line of sick people through the door and into a large ward. They placed the stretcher on the floor and I leaned down to make out Betsy's words. We must tell what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey. We have been there. At this point, Corey was ushered out. She took one last glance and her sister Betsy lying there in the hallway. And she read her sister's lips, which said, there is so much work to do. The next day, Corey returned to find that Betsy had died. In fact, she was brought in to identify her body. Writing of the event, she explained, the nurse put her arm around my shoulder and drew me across the room till we were standing above that heartbreaking row of dead. Corey, do you see her? She asked. I raised my eyes to Betsy's face. Lord Jesus, what have you done? Oh Lord, what are you saying? What are you giving me? For there lay Betsy, eyes closed as if in sleep. I wonder if you have ever been in a place where you have called out to the Lord, Oh Lord, what have you done? Oh Lord, what are you saying? Oh Lord, what are you doing? Oh Lord, what is going on? Why this? What now? I think we all will come to that place if we have not yet. When sorrow seems to be unceasing, we seem to be drowning in despair as trouble and trial threatens to swallow us up. And what was it that Betsy said in that concentration camp? No, no matter how deep the pit, God's love is deeper still. In fact, Corey would entitle her book, as you probably already know, A Hiding Place. For she wrote, I had a hiding place when things were bad. Jesus was in this place, the rock cleft for me. Well, we come uh, to resume our story of Jacob's life, and we see really the, the, the night in which Jacob spent in the pit. He is, of course, alone in the wilderness with a rock for his pillow. Jacob is in a desperate place because of his great sin, because of his deceit, because of his greed, because of his folly. And it's at that point that God, of all times, chooses to appear to Jacob, not to rebuke him, not to correct him or condemn him, but comes to him in grace. God says to Jacob, as we see here, I am with you. I will always be with you. I am, if you will, your hiding place. In other words, even Jacob's sin cannot separate him from the loving presence of God. 
J- Jacob's, Jacob's life is, is now, from this point on, as we shall see in our study of Genesis, will become defined by the promise that he receives here in Genesis chapter 28. And I think in many ways, so should our lives be defined by what we read here, that, that we see here God's faithfulness despite our rebellion to him. That God, we see God's presence in grace that gives us strength in our dark hours. Now, just to kind of review, to catch us up here, remember uh, our study of Genesis, we see, of course, God created the world, that all the world owes its existence to God, and yet, evidently, the world wasn't good enough for the people that he put upon it, so they decided to rebel against him. And in the process, they ruined everything. And the, the, the ruins spread all over the world as humans spread, and things kept getting worse. The world became filled with violence and greed and pride and false worship, and sin abounds and abounds and abounds, and God decides he's going to fix it all. The Bible calls that redemption. He's going to redeem. And he starts with this pagan man named Abraham, and he enters into a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, it's through you, and in particular, through your child, I am going to bless the world. And that covenant is then passed on to Abraham's son the son of promise, Isaac, right? And he says to Isaac, through you, and in particular through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. And then Isaac goes on and has two sons, Jacob, who we've already been introduced to here, and then he has an older brother, as we've seen earlier, Esau. The question is, who will be the head of the covenant? Will it be Jacob or will it be Esau? By which boy is God going to bless the world? Now remember, neither option's very good. You remember Esau is the man's man, right? He drives a truck. He likes NASCAR, right? He has a fish hook in his trucker's cap, okay? Uh, he, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a tough guy. He's a, you know, a manly man. By the way, he has two wives at this point, and all three of them kind of hate God, okay? So there's option A. Then you got um, Jacob, right, who's a mama's boy, okay? He wears pastel, okay, and, uh, and uh, he, he loves the Jonas Brothers and uh, drives a smart car and all the rest, okay, and, uh, and, and, and the only thing that Jacob's really good at is lying and deceiving and manipulating people, and so there you got option A and option B, right, you want to get kicked in the head or you want to get kicked in the gut, right, and, and we all got to say, well, neither, actually, is there, is there a third option? No, there's not a third option. And so God, we've seen already, in grace, grabs Jacob. He says, I chose Jacob. And we'll find out in actually Genesis 32, Jacob will be renamed Israel. And that through Jacob, that the people of God will come. And so the story of Jacob is really, how does someone go from a liar and a thief to the father of God's people? Well, last time we saw that Jacob lied to his blind dad about a dozen times and stole his brother's blessing. Now Esau found out, remember that? He wasn't very pleased. In fact, no one's pleased. Everyone in this house is sinning. The whole family is exploding. As we see scene number one, Jacob's danger. Jacob's danger. Look in verse 41 of chapter 27. We read, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now remember, last time we saw Esau, he was on his knees, crying, weeping, screaming, Dad, don't you have a blessing left for me? Isn't there anything left for me? And he just over and over, just crying, please bless me, please bless me. Well, he's no longer crying now. He's smiling. 
You say, what's cheered Esau up? Murder, right? A murder plot, right? The only thing that comforts him is fantasizing about killing his younger brother. Now, before we get too judgmental on Esau, I wonder how many have walked that path with a little fantasy about vengeance, a little fantasy about, you know, an enemy getting theirs, and all of a sudden we feel better just imagining that. That's evil. That's the spirit of Esau. And you see here, of course, in Esau, there's no repentance, there's no remorse. He's like Cain, just wants to kill his brother out of envy. And so, and so he evidently perhaps has this strategy. Well, maybe if my brother Jacob dies, then I'm the only surviving heir and I will inherit the blessing. Well, Esau is not the kind of guy that keeps things to himself. You think if you have a murder plot, you keep that close to the, close to the chest. Well, he's out there boasting in front of the servants, and word gets back to Mama, verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about planning to kill you. Okay, so uh, you know, he's out after you. And so what does mama do? Well, mama does what mama has already done. Oh, already done, we've seen. She takes things into her own hands and she hatches another plan, right? Verse 43, now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, right? Son, do what I say. Now remember, that's what got us in trouble in the first place. Okay, it's not let's talk to your father about this. It's not let's pray. It's not let's make amends. It's called family meeting. Let's figure this out. Let's repent. No, Rebecca is a manipulator. She has to be in control. She's destroying her family. It doesn't matter to her. I'm in charge. And so she hatches this plan. You need to go to Uncle Laban's house, as we see in verse 44. Stay with him a while. That'll be key, a while, until your brother's fury turns away uh, until until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him then i will send and bring you from there why should i be bereft of you both in one day so her plan is go off to uncle laban i'm going to send a word to you once esau's cooled off and then you could come back home just going to be gone a while well word never came and 20 years later Rebecca's dead, and Jacob is still living about a 1,000 miles from home because sin has consequences. It always costs you more than you realize. It always takes you places that you don't want to go, as we see in Jacob's life. And so Rebecca's now thinking, okay, I need to get Jacob out of here. I need to get him off far away. But how do I get Isaac, daddy, to go along? Well, that's easy if you're Rebecca, because she's very conniving, as you see in verse 46. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, remember, Esau already has two wives, and they are, remember, Hittite, okay? So in a sense, what Rebecca is saying is, I hate my daughter-in-law's. I could barely go on living. Okay? And, and by the way, Isaac, don't you hate them too? Which is a really nice mother-in-law to have, right? I mean, the holidays are rough at their house. And you think, well, Rebe- is Rebecca any better than the Hittite women? Right? Uh, she, she, she's, she's the type of person that, that is full of sin and wickedness and yet so clearly sees it in everybody else. You ever, you ever meet people like that? 
oh, those, those, those non-Christians are so gross and disgusting. And I just can't be around them. And I just need to get away from them. They're ruining my life. Look at them. Right? And that's what she's doing. Oh, what, what, if, what if Jacob marries one of those type of girls? Oh, no, my life won't be worth living. He needs a godly woman just like his mama. Right? Right? Well, what's, what, why, why are we even talking about Hittite wives? Well, you see, she's manipulating her husband. So she's going to mope around the house and whine and gripe. Oh, I just want to die. I just want to die. And she's going to use her unhappiness to cajole her husband to act, which he clearly does in chapter 28 and verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from a, the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Patamaran, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, Isaac clearly thinks this is his own idea. Hey, I got a solution, honey. What if we send Jacob away? Go to your family. He could find a wife there. And so uh, off the plan is hatched. Before he goes... Notice Isaac wants to bless Jacob. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, multiply you, that you may be a company of people. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. Now, I just want to know briefly, you see the change in Isaac's life? Remember last time he was very willing to deceive everyone and go against God's plan and bless Esau? And now God found him out. He trembled. Remember that? Trembled with great fear. He's repented. And now he is freely blessing Jacob. And, and he wants, he want, God has transformed his life. He's going to follow the Lord now. And so Isaac is beginning to walk after the Lord. Notice that, by the way, this time has nothing to do with the worldly things. That The earlier blessing that he put upon Jacob, which thought was Esau. Remember, the dew of the heavens and the wine of the earth. He's not praying for that anymore. Instead, he's blessing him, asking that God would continue the covenantal relationship he started with granddaddy Abraham. I think it's interesting that he says that you might be, a, there at the end of verse 3, a company of peoples. Now, people, peoples, that's the biblical way of referring to the nations or the Gentiles. The word company is, is the word that we use to translate church or congregation. So he's literally saying, well, you became a church of the nations. In other words, it's through this crazy family that we come to the church that has reached all, all peoples, all languages, or will one day. And, and, and here it starts with Jacob. And so he blesses him. And with that, Jacob, rather than standing up to his brother, rather than dealing with the conflict that he himself has created, right? He, he, instead, he hightails it out of there, verse 5. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaran, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now, before we leave Esau for, uh, for a while, a little, little story about Esau. He hears the whole thing about his Hittite wives. He hears that Jacob's been sent to marry a relative. Verse 6, when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaran to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him, he, uh, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padamaran. So, okay, so they don't like the Hittite girls. They sent Jacob off to marry a relative, so what does he do? He goes and gets a, rel- uh, a wife from his relatives as well, but he chooses the wrong relatives. Verse 8, so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, and you notice, above all, he wants to please daddy, Esau went to Ishmael and took as a wife, besides the wife he had, 
Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naboth. Okay, and so he, he wants daddy's blessing. Daddy doesn't like the foreign woman. I'll go marry a cousin, and maybe daddy will like me again. But it's all in vain, of course, because, listen, Esau's kind of a blockhead. He's just clueless. It's the wrong relatives, okay? Ishmael is Isaac's brother. They don't get along very well. If you remember, there is bad blood between those families. It's like a, it would be like a Clinton marrying a Trump, okay? That would not go well. That would not please daddy at all. Okay, and this is, but, but Esau doesn't know that, so off he goes. In fact, what's, what's worse than marrying a godless woman? Marrying three of them, okay? <laughs> which he now has. Well, Jacob's off on his journey, and it is quite the dilemma. Consider now scene number two, Jacob's dilemma. As you look in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, this is not a pretty picture. Notice the, notice the place where he sleeps is called a certain place. In other words, it's unnamed. It's a nowhere. Okay? Why is he stopped there? Well, we're told. He stops there simply because the sun is set. He's been running all day. It's nighttime. The sun is set. And then you have this very strange reference that he has put a stone for a pillow. Now, I don't know if, you, if you've ever been camping. As, as you know, I've spent hundreds of nights in a tent on the side of a mountain. And every, every single time I've, I've been in a tent camping, I want a pillow. Okay? You always want a pillow. And you, you don't, of course, you don't take pillows. We go backpacking. We don't carry pillows we create pillows. And so whatever you got that could be a pillow. So you, you ball up a jacket, you, you, you get some socks, you, you get your backpack, use that as a pillow. A small child will do, okay? All right? um, and you, 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 want a, you want a pillow, right? So why would anyone use a stone for a pillow? I've done, I've done this hundreds of nights. I've never once, on a single time, ever used a stone for a pillow. It never even occurred to me that would be a good idea. Why would anybody do that? The only reason you do that is that you have nothing other to use for a pillow. In other words, Jacob has nothing. And if you think I'm reading too much in the text, wait till he gets to Laban, because he doesn't show up with camels and servants and gold, like Eliezer did in, in Genesis 24, if you remember back then. He doesn't have any money for a dowry, a bride price, other than his labor. He has nothing. He is by himself. He has no company, no provision, no protection. You might ask, well, why did Isaac send him out like that? Because Isaac is obscenely wealthy, we've seen. So why send him off with nothing? We have no idea. But just just pure speculation. It might be that daddy realizes Jacob is a spoiled brat and he needs to toughen up a bit. I don't know. Maybe he needs to become a man. You've got to find your own way, son. I'm not helping you out of this one. And so off you go. Figure it out. Well, his life has fallen apart. He's left home. He has no family. He's not sure if he'll see them again. Of course, he got the blessing, right? Right? And look what he gave up for it. I mean, what does he have to show for this blessing? Doesn't, doesn't seem to be working out the way he thought. 
Hey, uh, he, I'm sure he doesn't really feel blessed right now. Where's my inheritance? Where's the dew? Where's the wine? Where's the plenty? It doesn't make sense, right? I got all these promises, promise after promise, and then I'm in the midst of trouble. He is literally 40 miles now away from home, perhaps covered that 40 miles in one day because he's on the run, doesn't know if his brother is chasing him. He is exhausted and afraid and finally collapses in the dirt. Totally alone. Or so it seems. Because unbeknownst to Jacob, the Lord has been at his side the entire time. And as Jacob slept between a a rock and a hard place, if you will, he discovered what many other people have discovered. That in times of trouble, God is near. You ever discover that? You ever realize that God seems to speak more clearly in the barren place, in the lonely land, after the sun has set. He will do so when Jacob, as you see, scene number three, Jacob's dream. In this dream, Jacob sees a vision and he hears a promise. The vision really involves uh, three things. You see it there in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, my translation says ladder, but you, you notice the footnote there. You look down at the bottom of the footnote, an alternative translation could be a flight of steps or a stairway. I tend to think, as many others do, that this is actually not a ladder, it's a stairway. I, I believe this because in their culture, they had very large towers that they said went to heaven. They're called ziggurats. And not, not cigarette, ziggurat, okay? And there's a spiral staircase that would go around it. And this is how they would get up to the heavens, okay? And so, I, and, and by the way, if you got angels going up and down it, the only ladder I know is kind of one guy at a time type of deal, okay? Um, and, and he's seen dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of angels on this thing. So it's, in my mind, it's a very large stairway uh, ascending to heaven. So he sees a stairway, and on it, as we see, he sees angels, and when we think about angels, don't think about Hallmark, don't think about television shows, okay? In, in the angels, in the Bible, whenever they show up, what's the first thing they say? Right? Don't fear, right? Don't freak out. I'm not here to hurt you, okay? In, on TV, the angels show up and say, good morning, right? Hi, okay? The, the, what he sees is something is the, of the royal majesty of God, the royal power of God sending his emissaries on the move, and they are descending with orders from the Almighty and ascending back to report of the work that they have done. We read, for instance, in Psalm 91, that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Or consider Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, angels go out, they help people inherit the salvation that's been promised them. They are servants of God that God sends out to care for his kids. And so Jacob's sleeping while God is what? Working on his behalf. And we often don't get this. We, we, we often don't understand life. We're in the midst of confusion and chaos, and we wonder, God, are you working? 
We, 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 we say, oh, Lord, what are you saying? Oh, Lord, what are you giving me? And it seems like he's not working. It seems like he's not here. It's hidden to us. And what God does in grace to Jacob, he removes the veil and he says, let me show you what's really happening. Let me show you, give you a little perspective. You know, you, when you get to the top of Washington Monument and you look down on D.C. and it all fits together. And it's rather beautiful, isn't it? And you see all the roads, how they all come together. And you see the mall and how it's all lined up. And there's the Capitol and over there's the White House. And, 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 and the, 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 the city planning is rather impressive. But you get down on street level in D.C. and it's all honking horns and traffic and craziness. And it's hard to, to, to understand and have that perspective, right? But once we get above, we see, oh, I see how it all fits together. Well, God, God has that perspective. He knows how it all fits together. We don't. We're on street level. But what he, what he does for Jacob is gives him a, 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 just a glimpse that he's working on his behalf. Just because you don't understand don't, doesn't mean I'm not working, right? My royal emissaries are working all over the place. I love the story, uh, uh, that, uh, in fact, I love many of the stories of John Patton. Uh, I know I share them with you often, the, the, the missionary to the cannibals on the island of Tana in the middle of the 19th century. And there was at one time in Patton's life that he, that he explains he was in his grass hut and the entire village had come out at night with torches and clubs and they intended to kill him and eat him. Um, and, and he's surrounded by them. And so what do you do if you're in a grass hut surrounded by a hundred uh, screaming men? Well, you probably try to pray, which he did. He'll explain how he tried to pray, but it's very difficult to pray when savages are screaming outside. And it went on and on and on until finally after an eternal night, the sun rose and the, these, these cannibals, these headhunters, they, they kind of returned to the village and left him alone. Years later, the chief came to faith in Christ. And Patton got the courage to ask him, said, do you remember that night when you guys surrounded my hut? He says, why why didn't you kill me? At this, the chief got very disturbed. In fact, wouldn't answer his question directly. He he answered his question with a question of his own. And he said to him, "Uh, who were those men with you? And Patton explained, there's no one with me. It's all by myself. And the chief began to shake his head vigorously and said, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling your house. Just a little vet glimpse of what God is doing. It reminds me of the story of Elisha. Remember that? And the, um, facing his, his enemies and his servant looks to Elisha and says, how can you be so calm in the midst of this? And he says, oh, Lord, will you just open his eyes? And his eyes are open. He sees the army of God circling the city in protection. For the Bible says in Psalm 34 and verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him, fear him and delivers them. You see, the angels are busy with their work. And Jacob... Jacob sees that they're working, indeed working on his behalf. The third thing that he notices is the Lord himself. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. If I could trouble you with one more footnote. You see that uh, next to that that pronoun it, there's a footnote. You look down at the bottom of your uh, Bible, it will say, uh, you could translate this, and the Lord stood beside him, which is what the Christian Standard Bible translates it. So the question is, is God on top of the stairway up in heaven, or is God on earth standing beside Jacob? And I think, based upon what he's going to promise, that the Lord himself actually descended the stairway and now stands over Jacob. After all, uh, as we'll see, this stairway has nothing to do with us climbing it to God, but rather God climbing down it to us. And so he, God there, standing above this sleeping man, 
offers him this promise in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He says, I'm your granddaddy's God, and I'm your daddy's God, and today I want to become your God. And at this point, I think Jacob will become the third patriarch, right? And, and we'll hear from this point on that he identifies himself as the God of Jacob. He says to Jacob, I'm going to give you this land, a promise he gave to Abraham and Isaac. In verse 14, he continues with more promises. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to, I'm going to give you many children. I'm going to create a nation through you. And it's through you, through your seed, that I'm going to bless the, the entire world. I'm going to bless the world through you. Now, that's kind of ironic because Jacob hasn't really been blessing people. He's been stealing blessings for himself, but he hasn't been giving them out. God says, but you, I'm going to use you to bless and bless, and through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. Who's the offspring? It's Jesus. Right? In some sense, it's Israel, but Israel just points us to Jesus. You read Galatians 3 and verse 16. We don't have time to go there. Jesus is the seed of Jacob that will bless the world. And so it's a promise of Christ. And then he adds this very personal promise of his presence. You see in verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There are actually four promises there. He says, he promises him companionship. I am with you, he says, which is good news for Jacob, because who wants to be with him? (laughs) No one. Right? No one. No, he's a jerk. No one likes him except mama, and she's far away. And God says, I like you. Believe it or not, I'm with you. Right? I don't know if you can relate. Maybe you, ever, maybe you feel alone. You say, no one likes me. No one wants to be with me. God says to you out of overflowing grace, I want to be with you. He offers him, secondly, protection. I will keep you wherever you go. I know you're running for your life. I know you're going into an uncertain future. I got you. Don't worry about it. He offers him, third, guidance. I will bring you back home. I know you're wondering if you ever get to come back. God says, yes, you get to come back. Fourth, he promises him assurance. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Everything I've told you, I'm going to be by your side and make sure that they are complete. He is pouring out promise after promise after promise on this man's weeping soul. I will go with you wherever you go. I will defend you. I will guide you. I will be with you. Now, notice he doesn't say, now, don't worry about Esau. Notice he doesn't say, everything's going to be okay at Uncle Laban's. He doesn't say it's all going to be easy. That would be nice to hear. It's not what he hears. What does he need to hear? He needs to hear in the place of his darkness and his fear, God say, I will never leave you. Not just now, when you get up in the morning, I'm coming with you, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to complete what I started in you, right? There are many things we want God to say to us, many things we want to hear. We want to hear the bills are going to go away, the health is going to return, the relationship will be restored, the conflict will end. We want to hear those things. We pray for those things. Those are good things. But what do we need to hear? We need to hear God say, I will never forsake. I will never leave you. Behold, I am with you even to the very end of the age. That's what God is always saying. Moses, go to Pharaoh. It's going to be really hard, but don't worry. I'm with you. 
Joshua, go, lead the people into the promised land, defeat your enemies, don't worry, I am with you. Gideon, take 300 men, fight against an army of Midianites, but don't worry, I am with you. You see, this is a promise God keeps giving, and if you are in Christ today, this is the promise he has given you. This is what Jesus has told us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you come here in a pit today. I don't know if your future is uncertain. I don't know if trouble is upon your head. You may be ill. You may be misunderstood. You may be abandoned. You may be discouraged. You may be in pain. You may be sad. You may be lonely. There are dark days in a Christian's life. It is not all sunshine and springtime. But this is what we know. We must hold on to this truth that God says to us, I am with you. And no matter how deep your pit is, his love is deeper still. No matter how great your sin is, his grace is stronger still. No matter how weary your soul is, his faithfulness is greater still. And so we might even say with the psalmist, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's with you. He's with Jacob. Do you realize the grace? Do you see the grace? I mean, what has Jacob done to to earn these assurances. Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a coward. Jacob is a fugitive fleeing from the consequences of his own sin. Is he even seeking God? This is stunning to me. Is Jacob seeking God? No. God's seeking him. That's what he always does. That's the gospel. Abraham is a pagan in a foreign land. God comes to him. David is out on the hillside caring for sheep. God comes to him. Matthew's in a tax tax booth extorting God's people. God comes to him. Paul's killing Christians. God comes to him. Stephen Carn is off maximizing sin and damage as much as he can. God nowhere on his radar. And God comes to him. This is what God does. He tracks us down. You understand God's not lost. We are. You don't find God. You don't say, oh, look, I found him. He's over here. Right? He's not lost. We're lost. And he comes to find us. When my kids get lost, right, which happens way too frequently, I don't say, okay, well, they'll just find their way back. Whatever. No, you go look for him. He's seeking us. We've all ran away. We're all lost. And God is looking for his kids. He's seeking us. And I wonder... I was praying for this yesterday afternoon that God would seek some of you today. Maybe you're lost. Maybe you've wandered away. God is seeking to bless you, seeking to draw you in. Jacob didn't ask for God. God went after him. And in fact, there's no remorse. This is stunning to me. There's no remorse in his life. There's no repentance. There's no crying out to God for help. God's not even in, in his mind And God unleashes grace upon grace upon him. He's lying in the dirt with a rock for his pillow. And God stands over him like a dad standing over a sleeping child and says, Son, I've found you. And I will be with you forever. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And maybe you're interested. What does Christianity believe? This this is, listen, this is kind of the core of our faith. That Christianity is not a religion of working and earning God's favor, 
right? His blessings, of course, are earned, but they're earned by Jesus. And then because Jesus has earned the blessings of God through his perfect life, he gives them to us. This is why Jesus died on the cross. He died there not because he was a bad person, but I am and you are. And he died to pay for the sin that we have all committed, that is a sin against the holy God who will not overlook our sin. And Jesus says, I will take their punishment in their place. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. And now he has earned for us forgiveness of sin. He has earned for us a record of righteousness. And he bestows it upon us if we place our faith in him. See, God is not looking for the obedient. He is not looking for people to get their lives together. He is not looking for the righteous. He is not looking for the good. He is looking for people who know they are sinners, who cry out to him, be merciful to me, for I have sinned. And he will be merciful to you and transform you by his grace. Consider scene number four. Lastly, Jacob's decision. Jacob's decision. So Jacob now is going to respond. This is how it works. This is God initiates, we respond. God works, God saves, God promises, we respond. We pray, we sing, we give, we're, we worship, we're in awe. This is what Jacob's doing. And if I, I believe, as many commentators believe, it's at this point that if you use New Testament language, Jacob got saved. The liar, the deceiver, saved. It is a massive turning point in his life. And we see the first steps of his transformation. Now, the Bible's very honest, right? Uh, do we have it all figured out when we first get saved? No. And Jacob clearly doesn't have it all figured out. Some things he does is good, some not so good, but he's headed in the right direction. Consider Jacob's three uh, decisions, three responses. First of all, he is filled with wonder. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He says, God is here. I would have never believed that God is here. God is in this nowhere place. He's here. Now, you might think, okay, well, God is in the church building, but he's not in the car at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. Well, you're wrong. He's there too. He said, God's in my bedroom when I pray, but he's not with me in the classroom or in the office place. No, he's there too. God, God is in the nowhere places. He's here. Jacob says, I can't believe God is actually here, and it's a little bit scary. Look what he says in verse 17. And he was afraid uh, and said, how awesome is this place? The King James says, how dreadful is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and it is the gate of heaven. He's afraid. We said, why is he afraid? (laughs) Well, he met God, and he's sinful, and God's not. God's holy, and that that will shake you a bit. If you think you met God and he's your buddy, I don't know who you met, but it's not God. Okay. He's, he's afraid. It's dreadful. It's shaking him. And so there's this wonder in his heart. And then he responds in worship. Let's see in verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. So the, the pillow of weeping becomes a pillow of, of worship. It becomes a monument of when God saved me. Or sometimes we sing that song, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, right? I raise, you think, what's an Ebenezer, right? I don't, I don't have an Ebenezer. Did they, they give those out when we came in, right? I didn't get an Ebenezer, right? No, a, a, an Ebenezer is a memorial stone. That's what Jacob's doing. He's creating a memorial, okay? God spoke to me here. I need to remember this. I don't want to forget what God did for me here. And so this becomes a sacred place for Jacob. 
We'll see this in his story. He'll come back to this place. God shows up in a powerful way. Sometimes we have important places in our lives. You know, the place where you got saved or your child was baptized or where you were married. Those become, they're normal places to everyone else, but to you they're special. They're, they're sacred, right? They're not places that people take pilgrimages to. We don't want to do that. But they are very important places to you. These aren't superstitious things. It's good to be reminded of God's grace. Good to be reminded of his presence, his provision. We pass these stories on to our kids and our grandkids. And so uh, Jacob wants to mark this place. He calls it Bethel, which means house of God, which is good because he's forced to leave his father's house. And now by grace, he has been invited into God's. The third decision that Jacob makes is through this vow. You know, some people call it a prayer, kind of a prayer, but he's not addressing God. You'll note, um, so I'm not, I'm not sure if he, it's, it's, it's really a, a prayer, a vow. It might be a prayer. Um, and you'll notice, okay, well, he started off pretty good. This is where things get a little squirrely for Jacob, okay? Look what he says in verse 20. He says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Okay? Just a quick note of application. Don't start your prayers with if. Okay? Okay? God, if. Right? He's negotiating with God. And you notice it all, it's all about material needs. Okay? If you give me food and you give me clothes and you bring me back home. Okay? That's what you need to do, uh, God. And so this is what he's asking God to do. It's not, sorry, so we say this is not the best prayer. But it's, it's headed in the right direction. We've got to give him credit. He's got much to learn, but he's headed in the right direction. Now, if God does these three things, Jacob then goes on to say, God, I will give you three rewards, at which God is in heaven saying, oh, boy, what do I get? Okay? Okay. Uh, The first reward, reward number one in verse 21, if you read on, he says, uh, then the Lord shall be my God. If you do these things for me, I'll let you be my God. Okay? As if God, God is thinking... You mean I get Jacob? I mean, where else can I find an unemployed mama's boy who deceives blind old men, right? You know, I really am pretty excited about that. Wow. What else do I get? Okay, reward number two, verse 22. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. So he says to God, you could have this place, okay? And uh, this, never mind heaven, you could get the desert here, and it even comes with a stone, okay? And so uh, you get a house out of this, you get me out of this. Uh, Somewhat comical, isn't it? Um, And then uh, reward number three, uh, read on in verse uh, 22, and he says, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And I'm sure God is thinking, good, I could really use 20 bucks. I mean, that... Right? He says to him, uh, God, if you make me rich, I'll give you some of it. Of course, God could say, or I could just keep all of it, okay? Which he could. Um, the Bible calls this a tithe. Jacob would not be the first to tithe. Abraham is the first to tithe. Uh, remember, he tithed to God through Melchizedek. A tithe is to give 10% of your income. Jesus, I believe, teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that Christians should tithe. The New Testament also adds that we should give cheerfully, regularly, and sacrificially. And so Jacob is saying, I'll, I'll begin to give back to you, God. Jacob says, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. 
And what's amazing, God in his grace, he doesn't dump them. He didn't say, really? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I just told you I'm going to do all these things, and you start with if? Come on, buddy. He says, okay, I can work with that. Holy God and a very sinful man. He said, how does that work? How, how, How can God just look over this sin? Well, the answer is not found in Genesis 28. It's found in John chapter 1. And if you'll, I just have, what, half a page of notes left. If you'll, it'll take five minutes. Turn over to John chapter 1. It's the passage that John read for us this morning. Um, it's this wonderful, wonderful story that Philip comes to his friend Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we've found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says to Philip, well, God doesn't go to nowhere places like Nazareth, right? No name places like that. And Philip says, well, just come and check it out. Come and see. And so Nathaniel says, okay, I'll go. And he's coming to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no, remember what it was? Deceit. What is Jacob renamed? Israel. What does Jacob mean? Deceit. So behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Okay? That'll that be very significant. We'll look at that later on in Genesis. Uh, and, and Jacob says, how, uh, Nathaniel says, how do, how, do you, how do you know me? And Jesus says, oh, uh, before you came over to me, I saw you under the fig tree. And at this point, Nathaniel's eyes get as big as saucer. His mouth drops, and he says, you really are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened under the fig tree, but evidently it was so significant. We don't know what was going on. We don't know who he was with, what he was doing, but to Nathaniel, it was so significant or so private that the fact that Jesus just mentions it blows all his doubt away. And he says, you must be, if you know what happened under the fig tree, you must be the son of God. And Jesus seems to me, God, it chuckles in that. He says, because I, I said that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Well, look what he says here in, in verse 50, John chapter 1, at the end of verse 50. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 51, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not from the Son of Man, not to the Son of Man. It's not like Jesus is on top and the angels are leaving me or coming back to me. You'll see the angels of God ascending on me. In other words, Jesus is explaining that the stairway that connects heaven and earth that Jacob saw all the way back in Bethel, Jesus says, that's me. I'm the stairway. I'm the link between heaven and earth. I'm the link between a holy God and a sinful man. Now, we need to understand every religion in the world has a stairway to heaven, and God is always on top, man is always on the bottom, and they climb the stairway through their religious acts. There's always stairs to heaven. 
There's the five pillars of Islam, there's the eightfold path of Buddhism, there's the Ten Commandments of Judaism, there's penance and purgatory of Roman Catholicism, right? And even sometimes this idea is invaded uh, uh, evangelical Christianity. We even have a song, right? We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder, soldiers of the cross. The problem with that song is that Jacob never climbed the ladder. He was never invited to. The ladder was not for him. We don't climb the ladder. The ladder has nothing to do with us climbing to God, but God coming down to us to connect to us through Christ. Jesus says to Nathaniel, and I think he's saying to us through his word, I'm the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus didn't come to reveal the stairway. He didn't come to point the stairway. He didn't come to show the stairway. He says, I'm the stairway. And so the connection to heaven for us is not what we do, but who we trust. Jesus would come down and he would pay for our sin debt. He would give us his record of righteousness so that a perfect and holy heaven can be united with sinful earth, if you will. Heaven and earth intersect over his dead body. And his resurrected body. Now he comes to nowhere places like Hamilton, Virginia. To nobody people like you and I. He finds us in our pit and he says, I am with you. Is he with you today? If you're in Christ, he is. If you, like Nathaniel, would respond to him, And say even now in your heart, Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. I believe and I bow my knee to you as my King. Will you say that to him even in your heart? And God will give you this promise that he will forgive your sins and be with you forevermore. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and the great encouragement it is to us. We're thankful for the grace that we have in Jesus. We, thankful, we are thankful that he has connected heaven and earth. Sinful man and a holy God is connected through his work and not our own. And now we delight in the fact that you, just as you promised Jacob, you promise us you are with us. This very moment we leave this place, you're coming with us, and you're going to be with us every step of the way forever and ever and ever. Will we not find encouragement in our troubled hearts? Can we not therefore find confidence in an uncertain future? Knowing that not everything will be easy, but we'll never be alone. Because of Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen.